There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, as we gather, I just want to echo that prayer that there would be no distraction that would get in the way from us experiencing you through your word, by your spirit. God, would we hear you speak? Would we have the, the eyes to see, the ears to hear of who you desire us to know, which is the fullness of you. God, and ultimately make us more like you. In your son's name, amen. You guys can have a seat. So as we left off, uh, last time in the book of Joshua, is that what we saw is that Joshua was actually sent in similar to Abraham. It actually kind of echoes this. If you guys remember, Abraham at one point was sent to rescue his nephew Lot. And he actually went against this coalition of, of giant kings to rescue his nephew. And here we have Joshua very much in a very similar way. We, we saw with the Gibeonites, and, and though these were people who tried to use deception, or they did use deception uh, to, to earn favor with the nation of Israel, what we really saw is that these are people who they took God's word seriously. In fact, they reminded the Israelites of God's own word. And then when they found themselves surrounded by the enemy, they called out for help. They, they, they invoked the covenant relationship for rescue. And what we saw there is it says, and then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. We saw that through this that God not only used Israel, but that he brought a hailstorm that was targeted, that, that even though you have people who have done the, the, the math and they've looked at the sky and like, oh yeah, there was a meteor shower around that time ago. That's awesome. Very thankful for the consistency. But it does, you still have to explain the guided missiles that are these meteorites as they're only attacking the enemy and none of the Israelites are in the same area. And so what we see is that it says that God took out more with that than he did with the nation of Israel. But the, as they finish this up, to understand what was the point of this, again, it, it's consistent with the very conquest that Joshua was sent on. That's similar to Abraham to go in and rescue like the woman on the wall. And here are these Gibeonites, the people who literally are the people on the border. The Gibeonite city is going to be what divides the north and south of Israel. They're right in the middle in the heart of the land. And God sends in Joshua to utterly destroy and to rescue his image bearers. And that we see again, all of this was a setup for, for God to illustrate ultimately his heart and his plan to send our Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Yahweh who saves. As Hebrews will tell us that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We looked at this last week, but it, it can never be said enough. 
for everyone in this room to understand that when God sees you, he says, you are worth fighting for. You are worth dying for. And as he sent in Joshua, Yeshua, he sent us our Joshua Jesus who says he will climb that mountain. He will tear down the walls. He will burn down the cities and break the chains of destructive deception. And he will bury the demonic false kings for you. All for you. And so with that, looking at what there, Joshua chapter 10, verse 40, it says, so Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And again, I know we've been going over this over and over, but this is where you're gonna see even more so the consistency of how Karam utterly destroyed is applied throughout the conquest. Because as we finish up today, we've seen a couple battles. We've seen Jericho. We've seen I, and now we've seen this battle at Gibeon, and, and all of these setting up, because then when you actually get to the conquest, it's like three quick pages, that the conquest of the land is going to be what we're going to cover today, and the conquest is this holy war set by God to utterly destroy, to karam those demonic bloodlines. It says, and Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. So again, Gibeon being that middle land. And so they have, this is the southern conquest is what's been going on. And so what it's giving us is from where they first came in, Numbers 13, Kadesh Barnea, and then because of fear of giants, backed away. As he's saying, they have now gone from that place all the way to that southern border, all the way through, and this is what he's gone through, and this is that southern campaign. It says, and all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. As again, to understand the obedience, and God's gonna give credit for obedience, but never forget, how was this war won? How was the victory won? Because it was the Lord who fought. Remember, as it started off Joshua before Jericho, seeing Jesus himself, the commander of the army of the Lord, and he says, are, are, are you for us or for your enemy? No. No, no. No, I'm sending you on a rescue mission for my image bearers, and there is these demonic bloodlines that I am called you to utterly destroy and to wipe out. That you see these people of the land, my, my image bearers, your enemy, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities. It has been the same war that he sent Joshua on and that he calls us to. And again, as we see this giant military coalitions gather over and over, it says, and the God takes them out in one day. It says, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal, we saw this even last week. It's sort of like Joshua's base camp. And the reason that's important to even just stop for a moment and recognize is that every battle of the conquest is an offensive. We never see them fighting off people at Gilgal. Every single one of the battles of the conquest is an offensive battle. But if you've noticed, they've also been in response to the enemy's movement. That when the enemy gathers to take out the image bearers, is that's when God says, Joshua, go get them. And so every single one of these, yes, is offensive, but it's always in response to the enemy's movement that God says, I'm sending you in. Chapter 11. 
And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of uh, Ashaph, and the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is on the seashore, in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. So what we just covered through when we got to, to the end of chapter 10 is that that was the southern conquest. So Joshua has taken out that. Okay, now we're looking north. So the Gibeonites were the halfway. Now we're looking to the north. And what we find out is that basically these giant kings have heard of what just happened in the south. And what do they decide to do? They all go, okay, we're not going to be able to do this in, in kind of little coalitions. We got to get everybody together. So they have this giant army amassed. It says as many as sand on the seashore is that they get this entire army together with this goal and intent to attack Israel. Again, follow the pattern. There they are at Gilgal. They hear about what Yahweh has been doing for them. And now in the north, they go, okay, well, let's gather together. You would think that maybe if they actually listened to the pattern, they would have thought about a different strategy. But hey, here's what it is. They again, they gather these northern kings. But the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, this is one of these funny things. And let's, let's, let's be honest here. In fact, there's this awesome action movie out there that the entire thing is inspired because a dog dies. And, and, and this one man goes on just the most awesome, epic wave of destruction because an animal died. And there's something that happens when we watch these movies. We're like, we're watching people get blasted away. We're like, ah, oh, get them. And then like a dog gets killed. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. I don't know what's happening, but we all do that. There's something about like when an animal gets hurt. You're right, you'll be sitting there watching a battlefield. You're like, yeah, and then the bomb goes off and the horse falls. You're like, oh, the horse. There's just, so you might be reading this moment and you're like, yeah, get them. And then you read, wait, what are you doing to the horses? And burning the chariots. One, it didn't say kill them. It said to hamstring them. When you guys who get into this, the point is just go, hey, take them out from being battle ready. It's basically going, hey, they're still alive, but take them off the military field and then to burn their chariots. And, and you might even be asking yourself, okay, what's, what's the deal here? Is that this really is, is a playback from Deuteronomy 17 is where, where God is actually telling them, hey, beware of falling into their worship. So we find out by 2 Kings chapter 23 is that in this land that actually sacrificing horses to the sun was actually a part of worship. So two things are going down here. What God is actually warning them is like, I'm going to deliver them into your hand, but beware, you can make two huge mistakes. You could fall into their practice of worship. And then secondly, he said, you're going to put your faith. They have come against you with all these hordes and all these chariots, and I'm going to bring you victory, and you could make the mistake of thinking that victory would be won by trusting in the tools of the enemy. It's something that we see in, in our media all the time. And again, I get it. There's a certain idea, but there's this idea that somehow that you can use like demonic forces to fight demonic forces. 
Oh, guys, that, that, that's such an enemy tool to go, you know what's a really way to fight against the enemy? Accept the enemy inside you and go, oh, man, you've already lost the battle. That's the ploy. That's the trick. It's set up a fake enemy. Have your Darth Sidious playing both sides so that you go, you know what you really need to do is you need to compromise and you need to make some of, you need to use the tools of the enemy to fight the enemy, not realizing is that by every step you take on the tool of the enemy, you are becoming that which you call enemy. And what God sees here is he's saying, be aware because you're going to get in, I'm going to bring you victory and you could look at all their military might and think, that's what we need for success. That's what's going to bring victory. And God says, I want to make this completely clear to you. Your victory comes by obedience because I, Yahweh, am the one who's going to deliver them into your hands. Not because of the horses, not because of the chariots. So don't go there. Don't fall into their worship and don't trust in their tools. Don't trust the tools of the enemy to fight the enemy. Otherwise, you will become that enemy that you are fighting against. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook of Mephishoth and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as Yahweh, as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And so again, so this is interesting because all the other cities, they're kind of, kind of, they're going to destroy, they're going to pillage. But when it comes to this one, it says, hey, this guy was once the head of this coalition, kind of got some of this stuff going. So he ends up actually just completely burning that city to the ground. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There's that phrase again. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left none breathing as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And again, so this is important. The reason I brought this up is this is, we're moving quite quickly as Scripture even does itself through the conquest. We've been building up these battles, but all of it was to serve as this template. So that way, as you heard that phrase over and over, we've been building this, so as you heard that phrase, utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed, that when you read later, go, wait a second, why are there still people there? It's because consistently with what we've actually been told, God said, this is the mission I'm sending you on. There is a woman on the wall. There's people on the border. I am sending you as I sent Abraham on a rescue mission. You go take out and utterly destroy those demonic bloodlines, and rescue my image bearers. As he said, every one of these cities as you come through had an opportunity for peace. And if they don't make peace and they want to stick with that worship, then as he will have told them, hey, I've been patiently waiting, that is where they will be under the same fate as though you were sent to destroy. Now, as we see this and we say, okay, so what was this holy war about? It's again, when we looked at Leviticus chapter 18. Now, now I, I hope I've made this clear, but I hope I also haven't 
over put it that, yes, there were image bearers of Yahweh who were committed to the Nephilim of the place, to the Anakim, and, and they, they, they put their lot in with them and they suffered their fate. That is a reality. And what was God sending in? He was sending in for those people like Rahab who heard of Yahweh, like the giving it to heard of Yahweh and say, we've heard about who your God is and he is truly God of gods, Lord of lords and kings of kings. And so within this, God is also not only going after these bloodlines, but he is going after the worship of them. Leviticus chapter 18, we, we looked at, and, and when we went through, is the practices and the culture of worshiping these false gods, of worshiping these demonic bloodlines. There are practices like passing the children through fire that God said, don't mingle with them, don't get into that worship, because what would they do? Again, we've looked at this, and, and not to uh, exaggerate, but the very reality is they would take these statues of their false gods with its hands out, and they would heat those hands to a red, molten hot, and then take a child and put it upon that, and they would try and beat the drums as loud as they could so that you wouldn't hear the screams of a child burning to death as it was cooked on these molten hands. That is what their worship led to. The worship that would take and sodomize young children and use them and traffic them as though they were pawns and tools. And God says, I am not okay with this. I am not okay of the innocent and those who are disregarded by society being treated as nothing. They are those that I knit together in their womb. They are my image bearers who I love and I am coming to put an end to those bloodlines and an end to their worship. That is what this has all been about. The loving God of justice who sees pain and abuse and he's not okay with it. And this same God who told Abraham in Genesis 15, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That at this moment as he's sending Joshua in, this is something that he told Abraham about 400 some years ago. And he's been patiently waiting, waiting for those to hear of who he is that they would have every opportunity to turn and now he is coming in to put an end to the abuse, to the death, to the pain, and he's coming in to take that land that he promised to his people. And in fact, as we see this waiting, you might find yourself just again kind of asking, okay, why the amount of time? What was he waiting for? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That again, this scene here is a God who is zealous for justice and passionate for mercy, who gave the land 400 years to repent and turn. As he's been marching in for the Rahabs to hear and to turn, for the Gibeonites to hear and turn. This is a God that as he's marching through on this rescue mission to let them know, yes, I've come to put an end to the injustice, but a God who's patient. It's so funny when you look at these scenes, especially as we've been going through in this moment, the conquest, is we have so many people who will try and fight against what the Bible says about who God is by asking questions like, well, why would a good God let bad things happen? And then you read here, God bringing judgment and justice, and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why the overreaction? Why so mean and cruel? Pick a lane. 
Here we have children being burned to death, being used and abused. And God says, I'm not good with that. And he sends in and all the while waving the banner to which they can bend the knee to and submit to and fall in line. He says, I will glad you bring you into this family. But if you want to keep that culture going, that he's not okay with. And yet here again, they would call injust, or they would call justice mean. Guys, there is a huge line between what we call murder and justice. And too many times we try in scripture look at God doling out his justice and want to put on him our worst qualities. This is a God who has waited 400 years years. A God who was patient that even as he's marching through, he came to say, I came for the woman on the wall. I came for the people on the border. This is a rescue mission to conquer the land of the giants. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south in the land of Goshen, the lowland in the Jordan plains, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made a war, made war a long time with those kings. Now again, this happens a lot. We're moving through scripture. We, we've been, we, we kind of go page by page and it can kind of be lost here. But up to about chapter 14, it's actually a span uh, Chapter thir- by the end of chapter 13, it's a span of about five to seven years since they've been going through the land. So yeah, we've been going week by week, page by page, but it says, it says that this war is going to be going on, and actually the total amount of war is going to end up being about um, 20 to 25 years. But at this moment, what we're reading here, as we read about the southern conquest and now the north, is what God has come in to do is he has broken the military back of this land. As, as they gathered to fight, what God did is he, he set the board. He let them gather. And when they gather in their big military c- campaigns, he comes in and he breaks the back of the military. So now the land has basically been completely demolished of any kind of military force against Israel. And again, as we see this, is that the, the, there's this pattern to conquer and then occupy. But guys, even in our own life, occupation takes time. This is one of these things that we're we're called to be more than conquerors. And so many times, maybe you get impatient with yourself, or maybe you felt some some outward pressure from from those who want to judge. Maybe we've been the ones to to overly judge others is to go, yes, the conquest has happened. The military stronghold against them has been broken. Now God says, but occupation takes time as he's going to continue to drive out the enemy's hold of the land. So as you read through, this, this, this conquest happened and now he's calling them to fully occupy his promise. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or family 
or nakedness or danger or sores. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in spite of that, Paul in reality says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 19 says, There is not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, again, those on the border. All the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them. Again, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. That as we saw with Pharaoh, that as God would present himself is that it reveals the substance of the heart, not in a deterministic, but in an affirming of who they are. That he might utterly destroy and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains. Again, are we focusing in as we see utterly destroyed and who the target was. From Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod. Now again, th- those, those things should sort of jump out to you. So it would say, those who in Numbers 13, they were freaked out about the Anakim who were throughout the land. And now we have the Joshua conquest who's utterly destroying their cities, their military might. And he's saying they have pushed them out of this land. And it mentions, hey, there's only a few places that these guys were left. And it mentions a place like Gath. You know, the place that Goliath is from that David will take up against. It's again, this consistency of going, oh, okay, so when we see once again the offspring of these demonic bloodlines return again to conquer and attack Israel, it's from the very place that we're hearing here in Joshua that they were left out or they were pushed to. And then just think of our modern times. And just stop for a moment as we see this consistent of rebellion and this enemy. And it says the other place that they're left is Gaza. That name might ring out to those who look at any kind of normal history or or current events when we hear about this place called the Gaza Strip and the constant fighting that's going on and where these attacks are coming from. Just going to leave that there for you. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Now, chapter 12, I'm going to say we're we're not going to actually go through chapter 12. Chapter 12 is what it goes through is from Moses to Joshua. And it lists out all the kings and the remaining lands to be conquered. And so that's what chapter 12 is on. So if you guys are there, now jump to chapter 13. Chapter 13 says, Now Joshua was advanced in years. I got to say, I got to this point, and as someone who just celebrated a birthday, this was kind of fun to me. He's like, again, the greatest commentary on Scripture is? Even in moments like this, well, how do we know that Joshua was advanced in years? It says, And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. So where do we get that commentary? How did the writer know, like, 
man, Joshua's old. I don't know, because God goes, Joshua, you are old. And the word advanced here isn't just advanced, it is stricken in the Hebrew. It is, Joshua, you are old, and time has not been your friend. You are stricken with years. He says, and yet there remains very much land yet to be possessed. There's an interesting juxtaposition here. I just found it interesting. Have you guys remember when, when Moses was coming to the end of his ministry? God goes out of his way to point that go like, hey, when you looked at Moses, he didn't look old at all. That even though he had gone through all this, it says that his eyes were still bright and he had vigor like a young man. And yet it's interesting, the one that God says, hey, time's been good to you. Oh, but you're done. And then he comes to Joshua and was like, you're old stricken with years, but there's still a bunch of work to be done. And there's this interesting just, just there between these two guys. It says, and this is the land that yet remains all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Gerashites from Sihor, east, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite. Canaan, Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites and the Ashdites, the uh, Ashkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites and the Avites, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites and, the, and Miras that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gabalites, I'm probably not saying any of these right, that sounds like Turkey language right there, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Balgad below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the brook of uh, Mishraphath and all the Sidonians. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. As we're going to stop there, guys, as, as we just, guys, again, we move fairly quickly through, but as Scripture did, that is the conquest of Joshua. Everything we've been building about, we're, okay, Joshua's conquest and, and utterly destroy Karam. We were looking and go, we just covered it. You had Jericho, Ai, the battle of the Gibeonites, and you, you have all this, and then you had these, these battles of the coalitions of these armies. And in single days, these giant kings would get their military forces together, and God goes, hailstones, pow, pow, pow. Then the north goes, let's all get together. And one day, God goes, yeah, destroy them and cut their horses' hamstrings, hamstring the horses, destroy the military might. And so the conquest at this moment has been complete. Now you're going to look at that what he's saying is like, but there is still work to be done. The land has not been taken, but I have destroyed the military might. And who did he drive out out of the area? The Anakim. What was the enemy focus? What are we been looking at is to say, I've sent you in to take out that bloodline, drive them out, utterly destroy them. And then if you guys caught that where he says, hey, there's lands that the Philistines are sterling. I'm sending you in to go get them out, to destroy them. The conquest of Joshua, this holy war, has always been intended to karam the land, to consecrate it, to get rid of these demonic bloodlines with the intent of saying, go rescue the woman on the wall for the people on the border, for my image bearers, for them to know I am Yahweh who saves and I'm sending Yeshua to be that lead. And as we've seen over and over, that it is Yahweh who brings the victory. And we're reminded that for us in our lives, that as God brings victory in your lives, to beware that place of victory, one of the most dangerous places, take heed lest you fall. To think yourselves above and to try and pick up the tools of the world 
thinking that somehow by your strength or your intellect, you have brought victory. All has been given to us by God himself. The, the giftings you have, the intellect, we are to give him glory for all of those things. The very breath in your lungs comes from him. And we can make the mistake that he warned them against and to, to pick up the tools of the world and then to find ourselves in bondage to the same worship that treats people as tools that by arbitrary standards makes them slaves and casts aside their lives as just a meaningless bunch of cells. And Yahweh comes in to say, I am not okay with that culture. I am not okay with that mindset. That is my child that I knit together. And we have been sent on a holy war to go on a conquest to rescue the woman on the wall, the people on the border, knowing that his the means by which is not going to look like the way of the world. As he says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. And again, who is this, these orders coming from? From the, the patient, loving God who described himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. And even that is God describing himself to Moses as, as the one who was patient and merciful, long-suffering, forgiving sin, and yet then says, but I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. I, I won't just clear the guilty. And, and we see this juxtaposition. How is this possible? How can God be both loving and just? And then Paul reminds us in Romans chapter five, but God, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That as we see here, Joshua sent on the rescue mission, we see our Joshua who was sent for one singular purpose to go to the cross, to take upon him the punishment due us that we would have eternal life with him. How did he solve that issue? Is no, he didn't just forget the punishment that was due us. He took it upon himself. That is the solution. So many times, again, uh, some of us were talking earlier, you're going to see moments in scripture where you go, how can these two be I see things that are at odds. I see a God who is loving and kind, but is just. And how do I solve this issue that seems to be incompatible? And yet we've been given the answer to that over and over. Put Jesus in the middle of it and see how God works it out. Even when you find yourself in Scripture going, I don't see how these things can come together. Put Jesus at the middle of it and know that he's going to reveal more of who he is through that in a, a way that would draw us deeper into relationship with him. Let's pray. And God, we thank you for this time in your word this morning. And Lord, as we see this conquest that would lead to an occupation, Lord, I pray for anyone here in this room, Lord, that finds themselves uh, maybe being hard on themselves because they, they're, not, they're not happy with the speed at which they're progressing, Lord, that you would give them peace to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But Lord, that you, you have won the battle. You have won the war. The conquest has been complete. And now you give us the task to occupy your land of promise. Continuing on this rescue mission for your image bearers. 
Father, would you reveal yourself to us, fill us with your spirit, make us more like you so that, Lord, the world around us will see you in everything that we do. Father, thank you for who you are and who you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at Sicko's Beat Sucks 797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.